Well, before we get into our message time, I just want to ask you a question. Are you walking with the Lord in joy? I, I know our world is just a horrible place getting worse, but you know what we call that? We call that our mission field. And so as we walk with the Lord in joy, as we handle the, the suffering that God allows and brings with grace and with trust in the Lord, we're a testimony to those around us. And so I want you to know that uh, the leadership of our church, we pray for you and we, we know uh, much of what's going on in your lives. And sometimes we don't know if you, if you keep it a secret from us. We don't know, but that's okay. But I want to encourage you that heaven is coming. I want to encourage you that Christ is coming. I want to encourage you that every Sunday we kind of simultaneously hope that God does much and that it's our last Sunday here together. And so stay true to the Lord, stay encouraged, stay in the word, stay in prayer. Great and mighty things are coming. And we we think of the last verse of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So if you're hurting, if you're in trouble in your own heart, if you feel like tomorrow is just too much, stay encouraged because the Lord has blessings for you along the way and there will be a day when Grace Bible Church is just one of the millions and millions of faithful churches that Christ raised up and we all stand together. So will you stay encouraged? Amen? All right. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. And we'll look at verses 8 through 13. We'll do some parts of it today. While you're finding that text, I want to bring you back in your memory to the churches of Revelation 2 and 3. You may have uh, figured out that's kind of one of my favorite topics. I've preached on two of them recently. We've summarized each of them in our recent Revelation Sunday a few weeks ago. I refer to them often, both for my own insight and for the insight of the whole church. They provide help. They provide understanding and One of the standout features of those seven churches is the fact that Jesus clearly not only knows what's going on in every local church, but we would also note that this isn't passive knowledge. This is knowledge which evaluates. This is knowledge which which grades, as we might say it. And of the seven churches, five of them receive rebukes and corrections from the Lord Only two of them do not receive correction. And so for me as a pastor, the question continually goes through my own mind, what would Christ's evaluation be if he wrote the church on Young Street a letter? What would his evaluation be? Some of you groaned, and so I know, yeah, that's tough, but, but he has a letter for us. We just don't know what it is, and so we get to understand from Scripture what we're to be doing But we're blessed as a local church when, as a church, we do our best to abide by the wishes of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. He expects no less, and we owe him no less. And how faithful he is to be a help and to provide our rich fellowship and our joy and our fruitful labor together. One of those ways we abide by his wishes is to structure the church leadership in the way that he's commanded, to obey him in this regard. Now, as we saw when we did our extensive study on the church's shepherds in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, there are definite clear guidelines for sure, 
especially in the area of the required character qualifications of leadership. But within those guidelines, we still have quite a bit of freedom in how we implement the Lord's clear commands for the spiritual care of the church. And in the same way, we have some latitude and some freedom in how we implement the wonderful layer of leadership, the official servants of the church that we call the deacons. In some churches, anyone who does anything is titled deacon, and this does serve a good purpose. It elevates the qualifications of anyone who serves as being important. In other churches, especially in the Baptist tradition, the title of deacon is given to men who in reality really function more like elders. So maybe there's a misnaming of the office in those cases. But perhaps the greatest Baptist preacher of all time, one of my heroes of the faith, Charles Spurgeon of the 19th century, he also enjoyed a plurality of elders, but he had a separate core of deacons as well as as scripture would dictate. But he expected the deacons in the church not just to function as the servants in the church, but as purveyors of the gospel in every opportunity that their service gave them to proclaim Christ. And then in yet other churches such as ours, the deacon is a more focused title for someone who has a specific function in carrying out the work of the ministry. We have deacons over worship service servants, over our small groups, over guest care, security, over uh, Grace Equip Bookstore, over the Steadfast Bible Conference, special events, and numerous other categories. We also have what we might call deacons in training, as well as those who are, who are already doing the work of leadership and, and will eventually become uh, given that title. And we would agree most wholeheartedly with Spurgeon's assessment that deacons ought to use their service as gospel opportunities. There's not a separation there. They have an opportunity that perhaps others don't have. We might say it this way, in many ways, the deacons are the hands and the feet of the church. Those who lead other hands and feet, the other members, into the tasks that are necessary to fulfill the work of the ministry. Now, rather than taking a lot of time to teach about deacons, we could just make an announcement. I could write a 500-word blog article, but that's not what the Spirit of God has chosen to do. The fact is that the Spirit of God gave us these six verses here in 1 Timothy about deacons, and He's promised in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so rather than just making this a side note, we want to give it the same emphasis that the Lord has given this topic. It's to our benefit and it's to the glory of God that we listen and that we learn about God's appointed office of deacon, just as we did about the shepherds and the elders of the church in verses one through seven. But since we see that in verse eight, the text begins with deacons likewise must be, then we've already learned a lot of principles from the eldership passage which carry over to deacons as well. And so we'll spend less time here in verses 8 through 13. But just to kind of lay a foundation, let's go ahead and read this text together and and then we'll consider some parts of it today. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, 
managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to spend three messages on this passage and we're going to cover every word of these six verses, but I'm going to organize this topically. So next time we're here, we'll look at the specific qualifications to be a deacon. And in the final message, I'll focus in on verse 11, the women servants and or the wives of the deacons, and we'll address that little detail. But today, I just want us to understand the foundation, understand the basics of the office of deacon. And I want to keep this as simple as I can. So I'm going to give you four key words to understand the foundation of this office. I'll, I'll give them to you up front. And then as we move along, here are the four key words. The first one is the principle. The second one is the position. I'll repeat this. The third one is the proof. And the fourth one we'll call the progression. So there's the principle, the position, the proof, and the progression. And I'll repeat those as we go. First of all, let's look at the principle. And to look at the principle, I want to have us leave 1 Timothy 3 for a moment and turn back to Acts chapter 6. What we're going to see in Acts chapter 6 is not necessarily a direct correlation to the overall practice of deacons in the church, but there are definite similarities which allow us to draw a basic principle for Christ's model of leadership here in the church. Acts chapter 6, and let's just read verses 1 through 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So what's happening here? There were widows in the church. Some were Hellenists. These are, ra- these are those raised in the Greek tradition. And others were Hebrews, those raised in the Hebrew tradition. And there was a bit of a dispute that some were being neglected. And so this was nobody's fault. This wasn't a, wasn't a sin issue. It was just an administration issue. And so the apostles get these seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, to appoint to this duty to take care of these widows and to get rid of that uh, complaint. But I want you to notice that these are not just men who can perform tasks. The first and primary concern is that they're men of character. It says that they're of good repute, meaning they already are trusted. People know them. People trust them. They're, they're men with a reputation that's good already. They're said to be full of the Spirit. I don't have time to go into all the details, but I'll just skip to the conclusion. To be full of the Spirit does not mean full of the Spirit as opposed to Christians who are not full of the Spirit. That's, that's a misnomer. All Christians have the Spirit of God. But when he speaks of being full of the Spirit, we could correlate this with some other scriptures in Colossians 3, for example, that, that would tell us this is a knowledge of the Word of God. 
through which the Spirit works. So in other words, to be filled with the Spirit in this particular case speaks of being men knowledgeable in the Word and who can apply it. And then they're men full of wisdom. They think biblically. They think rationally. They think using their Spirit-given knowledge of the Word of God. And so the first and primary concern is that they're men of character, not men of skill necessarily. You know this also, the purpose of these seven men, it is to free the apostles to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this isn't what we see here necessarily an exact model for deacons in the church today because these seven men were as much preachers and evangelists as they were servants. Stephen preached the sermon of a lifetime to the wicked Sanhedrin Sanhedrin Council of Jerusalem before they murdered him for his service to Christ. They didn't murder him because he was a deacon in the church. They murdered him because he was preaching the word of God to them. But there are similarities that we should note. Just a couple of them. First of all, like these seven men, 1 Peter 3 first highlights character over skill. That skill is necessary, but not nearly as much as character. 1 Timothy 3 highlights character over skill. And then there's another similarity. It's more of a semantic similarity. Here in Acts chapter 6, the root Greek word often translated deacon is used three times. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4 is translated in those verses as distribution, serve, and ministry. And so in the Greek language, there is a vocabulary or a semantic word connection very clearly. So what is this principle then that we can derive? Here's the principle. It is that spiritual leadership of the church is assisted by men who carry out functional duties to serve the body. The spiritual leadership of the church is assisted by other men who carry out more functional duties to serve the body. Now, in this particular case, the primary duty, if we can call them this, of the deacons was member care, in particular caring for the widows. And the purpose of their work was to free up the shepherds of the church to devote themselves to the word of God and to prayer. This is a good and a healthy and a right model of how to do church. And I would say this as well, serving to enable others to shepherd is a double blessing because now you're enabling the shepherding of the flock of God. Why is it that I'm able to devote the amount of time I can to the study of God's word? It's because other men do lots of other stuff. This is God's chosen method to multiply the efforts of the shepherds in the church. Listen, when I hear of pastors mowing the lawn or vacuuming the church or insisting on being at every meeting that every team has, Scripture would say, get more deacons. I like mowing the lawn. That's a misuse of my time, though. We don't have a lawn. That helps that a little bit, too. But in theory, if we had a lawn, I would like mowing it. But Scripture would say, get more deacons. And so Acts 6 at least lays the foundation for the principle of a leadership structure comprised of a plurality of elders and a core of devoted servants to the church. That's the principle. So let's turn back now to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, and the second key word to understand the foundation of this office is the position itself, the position. So let's get a little more detailed here, and we want to get into the details because God put them here for us. This text begins, deacons likewise. 
There's a clear parallelism here to the passage immediately proceeding on the shepherds of the church. And so when it says deacons, likewise, it means similarly, in the same manner. So what is it that's similar? Well, the most obvious thing that's similar and, and probably the most important is that there are qualifications to serve. The church isn't a, a free-for-all in which anyone should be able to do anything. This isn't the attitude that someone is somehow condescending to serve the church of Jesus Christ. Quite the opposite. This is the attitude that service is a privilege. Service is accompanied by character. And that's why we don't have an argument against churches who, who say that all of the servants in the church are deacons. That they are all to have that character. That's a high and lofty goal. Now the word deacon itself is important. Diakonos, and the basic translation is servant or minister in the sense of carrying out a task of some sort. It's used 29 times in the New Testament, but interestingly, it's used extensively in extra-biblical literature as well, and I'll mention that more in a moment. Overall, it can speak of someone who serves as an agent or an intermediary. A diakonos can also be a courier or a messenger of information, the basic idea is that a diakonos is in between two other parties, helping one party make something happen with the other one. There's the intermediary idea. Josephus, the ancient historian, wrote of Rachel, who brought Jacob to her father Laban as performing the function of a diakonos, an intermediary. This is the same general sense that Paul uses of his own ministry of being a courier, a messenger of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says of himself, God has made us sufficient to be ministers, the plural for diakonos, of a new covenant. He's not speaking of the office of deacon in the church, but just a general sense of carrying or being an agent or an intermediary. In the more specific sense that Paul has in mind here in 1 Timothy 3 with the office of deacon, it speaks of someone who performs tasks at the request of a superior, someone who assists a leader in carrying out a mission or a function. We would also point out with this term diakonos that the pathway to greatness in the church, ironically, is humility to be a servant. That's what greatness is. Jesus used the term diakonos this way in Mark 10, 43, when he told his disciples, whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos, your servant. The great ones are the servants. What does this imply? It implies leading with service and with labor, with effort, with exertion. Now, these six verses here in 1 Timothy 3 give us the clearest and most detailed understanding of the office of deacon in the church But we do want to be clear, the local churches around the world were already practicing this structure long before Paul wrote this. It was already known because of the teaching of the apostles. In fact, a few years before writing 1 Timothy, Paul wrote the church at Philippi, and notice his greeting, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The church was already functioning this way. You might have also noticed here in our passage, which is the longest explanation of the office of deacon in the New Testament, you might have noticed that Paul doesn't really go into a lot of detail as to what a diakonos actually is. He spends much more time on the character of the diakonos. So why doesn't Paul go into a lengthy explanation of the role and the function and the duties of a deacon? Well, it's likely because the concept 
that the, the concept of deacon was already well known to the church members because of their interaction in the Greco-Roman world. They already knew this. They already understood this term. A diakonos was not strictly a church-related title. When we think of the word deacon, we think of church. That's the only place we use that. You don't go to a fast food store and say, my food is bad, I'd like to speak to the assistant deacon. You say, I'd like to speak to the assistant manager. But diakonos was used in the secular world as someone who was commissioned by a superior, an assistant, and that diakonos had a certain measure of authority that was derived from representing that superior. In other words, a diakonos could say to, the, to underlings, you need to do this because the boss said so. More specifically, a diakonos served as an, as an assistant to that superior. And that's clearly the emphasis in these two, the two major texts regarding deacons. I read the first one earlier, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, the deacons are greeted with the overseers and deacons. With the implication being that the overseers are now those leading the deacons. Here in our passage, the extensive treatment of eldership in verses 1 through 7, followed up by a less extensive treatment of the office of deacon, including in that the guidelines concerning women serving in the church, it indicates that there is a, there is a subordination. The deacons are subordinate to the elders. The early church father, Ignatius, in the 1st and 2nd century AD, he wrote his letters to various churches and often described very clearly that deacons are assistants to the overseers, to the elders. Justin Martyr, a second century Christian writer and apologist, meaning he was a defender of the faith. He eventually died as a martyr, and that's why he got the nickname Justin Martyr. But he wrote an important passage for us describing a typical worship service gathering early in the second century. They had the preaching of the word of God. They had prayers offered to the Lord. They had a time of embracing and and greeting one another after prayer. Many of them didn't see one another during the week. Then they had the bread and diluted wine, which is really just grape juice because it was diluted so much, being served for uh, communion. And then the presiding and the teaching elder, Justin calls him the president, we would say the senior pastor, leads the congregation in prayer for the Lord's table. And then the Lord's table, the bread and the cup is served. And here's what Justin writes. Quote, Those who are called deacons give to each of those present to partake of the bread and wine mixed with water, and to those who are absent, they carry away a portion. And so this is a great example. The deacons were serving the Lord's table and then, interestingly enough, taking it to go to those who were unable to attend. By the way, it tells us something. They were taking attendance. You notice the spiritual accountability that if you miss church, you're getting a knock on the door from a deacon. Maybe we should appoint a deacon over where were you last Sunday? Some of you are worried we're going to do that. That's the principle and that's the position. Let me give you a third key word for our foundational understanding. We'll call this one the proof. How do we know someone would be fit for this office? The church of Jesus Christ is littered and polluted with leaders who are there for the wrong reasons, who are there because they have money or because they have influence or because they have loud mouths or because they're just pushy. So how do you know? How do we know someone would be fit for this office? Verse 10 tells us, And let them also be tested first, 
Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. It says first they should be tested. This is a Greek word that means examined, approved. Well, tested in what regard? Well, first of all, we see qualifications here. You, you can't determine those qualifications without knowing someone well. You can't just say, do you feel that you fulfill all those qualifications? Yes, great, you're in. You can't say that. They have to be known. And then you also test a record of service, that he already has a heart to serve. Somebody who is lazy in the church and then says, I want to be a deacon, probably isn't going to do anything when they're a deacon. They're to be blameless if they prove themselves blameless. Now, this is an interesting word because this is a word that carried a lot more meaning for the, the readers in this day than it does for us at the moment because there is another connotation to it. But it means at its basic uh, level to be above reproach. That no one in the church has a reason that someone should not be serving as a deacon. And maybe you'll notice that every once in a while when we put forward, put forward candidates for deacon or for elder, we ask you, if you have a problem with this person, first go to him, then come to us. And we ask that for that very reason. But in the context of how this word was used in everyday life in Paul's day, this word blameless, it had a very specific reference to your professional life and your home life. That is life in the world, out in the workplace, out in the marketplace, and interacting with the lost is above reproach, is blameless. And his life at home is above reproach. He has a worthy reputation. In other words, he could be an example to those in the church. He should be able to have people in the church in his home. And, and the, the members of the church can see a loving, submissive wife and children who are obeying the Lord in a home that's focused on Christ and in prayer and honoring God in all that they do. And so when Paul writes that a deacon must prove himself to be blameless, the listeners to this letter would say, oh, that's big. He has a reputation that is good in the world and a reputation that is good at home. This is why when we ask a man to consider being a deacon or an elder, we ask his wife, what do you think? That's part of that qualification. Why is this time of observation of testing for both elders and deacons so important? Well, the tone of the leadership of a church determines the effectiveness of the whole church. And I think we're all, we all know that intuitively, don't we? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I know some of you here have left ineffective churches or churches that have abandoned the gospel. I don't think I've ever heard one of you say, I had to leave the church because there are a few members I just don't like. Most of you have said I had to leave a church because the leadership has punted the gospel or because they're not leading the way they ought to be or they're not men of character or they're men that I see at a bar or I know are, are looking at porn all the time and yet they're leading the church. You left because of the leaders. There's another reason they should be observed. This is just human nature. Once a leader is in, it's pretty hard to get them out, isn't it? And it only happens with pain and heartache to the whole body. So better to do our homework up front. I read an interesting article. It was written in the context of the Baptist tradition. It was actually part of a Bible study that a seasoned pastor wrote. And he wrote an entire Bible study on what it means to be a deacon. And in his third lesson, he considers the question of suitability to the office of deacon. And he asks the candidate to do a self-examination as part of the overall process with the following questions. 
He asks these questions. Who thinks you should be a deacon? And I love this. If it's a relative, you should rethink this. He asks, do you have a desire to serve people? He asks, are you anxious to have authority as a deacon? And he said, again, you should rethink this if that's what you want. He asks, can you see God's spiritual preparation in your life? He asks, is your pastor enthusiastic about you serving? Is your wife enthusiastic about you serving? Have godly men suggested you serve? Have you been living obedient for the Lord, disciplined in the word and in prayer and in a faithful attendance and fruitful lifestyle? So how does a potential deacon prove himself? Well, by doing the work of the service for a long time and developing the maturity and the character that's outlined here in these six verses. You see, the true servant isn't concerned about the title, but simply yearns to love Christ by serving in the church. And if the title gets added, then it really shouldn't make that much difference. He's already a faithful servant. Some of our deacons are deacons simply because they were already doing that work anyway. Or maybe I could put it this way, a servant in the church becoming a deacon shouldn't be a stretch, shouldn't be a jump, it should be a natural progression. Those who know him should say, yeah, that makes sense. It shouldn't be, really? I only see him in church once a month. Now, some might ask the question, how many deacons do we need? Well, let me answer that question with another question. How much ministry do you want? How effective do you want to be as a church? Would you rather row a boat with two or with 20? Would you rather fight Satan the enemy with three soldiers or 30? Would you rather meet the needs of the saints with four servants or 40? I would say we need as many deacons as we want to be effective for Christ. It's that simple. So our foundation has the principle, the position, and the proof. One more foundational key word, we'll call this one the progression. And this is, for me personally, just as a student of the Bible, kind of the most interesting part of this. The progression, Paul outlines some rewards for serving well as a deacon. And they demonstrate a progression, a development, a a maturation in this person's life. Look with me at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now you notice up front that these rewards are only for those who serve well. There's no reward for merely having time in service. Anyone can fill a chair. Anyone can occupy a position. But what was done with that time? Was he all in? Was he completely there? Or was he uh, what one pastor called invisideacon who really didn't make an impact at all? Paul gives as the natural result of faithful service two rewards. And I want to spend a little time on this. The first reward the well-serving deacon gets, we'll call a good standing. A good standing. This speaks of his reputation in the church. He has a reputation as being one who's all in for the gospel, all in for the glory of Christ. He loves the church. He loves the church's people individually. This isn't based in popularity. This isn't based in personality. It's based in service. He's demonstrated love for Christ. He's demonstrated love for the church by his loyal and long-standing service. You know, in our culture, we can hardly get people to stay in the church for five years, much less serve for five years. Now, it's interesting that this verb form, who gains a good standing, it indicates a linear, ongoing process. 
that there's an emphasis not only on service that's been rendered in the past, it's not just a resume, but it's what's going on right now, what's he doing now? Or some like to say, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for the church lately? Faithfulness in the present. He gains the standing and the reputation of one who can be counted on, one who's at the ready, one who hasn't polluted his life with so many other things that he can't serve in the church. One who's a pillar in the church because he's available, he's present. If you were, a, if you were a, uh, a, an investigator and you were looking for fingerprints on the ministries of the church, this guy's fingerprints are all over the place. The church wouldn't be the same without him. He's like Epaphroditus, whom Paul honored and trusted. Listen to the story of Epaphroditus from Philippians 2, beginning in verse 25. This is the story of Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What a reputation! He's a worker, he's a soldier, he's a messenger, he's a minister. He longs for the church. He's distressed because the church was worried about him. The church would rejoice at seeing him again. He was to be received with joy and honor and he risked his life for the work of the gospel. Could I just be shepherdy for a moment? Once in a while, a church member will come to me and say, I haven't been here for a month and nobody missed me. Could I, with all gentleness, ask the question, why? Why did nobody miss you? Because your fingerprints are nowhere. Put your fingerprints on the lives of people and on the lives of the ministry, and when you're not here a week, people are going to look around saying, hey, where's so-and-so? Epaphroditus. He received a good standing, such a good standing that the Spirit of God chose to, to memorialize him for all time in the pages of Philippians. There's a second reward. First, there's a good standing. The second reward we'll call a growing strength. A growing strength. And this is the part that's really, it's just tremendously interesting to me because this really crosses over into a spiritual leadership role. And I want to show you how this works. Verse 13 says, He also receives great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we have to do a little homework here first. The English Standard Version translators elected to add the definite article, the, which is potentially misleading, the faith. The faith, we see most of the time in the New Testament, speaks of salvation faith in Christ or the content of what we believe. We believe the faith. But in Greek, it's simply great confidence in faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This is much more down to earth. This is much more earthy, This speaks of boldness and certainty and conviction. Let me put it in terms that we all understand. This speaks of his strength to trust the Lord. That he trusts his God. That he has great faith in Christ as the head of the church. 
This is a man who has great assurance and personal trust in seeing Christ's work in the church. This is the one that when the church member comes to him and says, I'm worried about what's happening in the church, that this man can say, let's trust the head of the church. I trust him. He's seen in his years of service Christ's goodness and his faithfulness. Can I put it this way? The deacons are the purveyors of the oral traditions of the church, of the stories of God's faithfulness. The deacon is a stalwart pillar that gives confidence and joy to the other church members. This isn't a man who says, let me try serving the Lord for six months and see what happens. No, instead, he's developed a track record over long periods of time of serving and seeing the Lord's faithfulness. If I could put it to you this way, this is a man who has stories. He has stories of God's faithfulness that when someone in the church is filled with fear and trepidation and anxiety, this deacon can say, listen, let me tell you about the Lord's goodness. Let me tell you about the Lord's faithfulness. And then begins to recount story after story after story of God's kindness to help him, God's kindness to help the church. You have every right to expect that you can go to any of our deacons and say, tell me some stories of the goodness of God. And to my knowledge, I believe every one of our deacons can with a smile say, absolutely, have I got stories. What a gift to the church. A spiritual Strong in the faith, well-serving deacon is such a benefit to the church. And I'd like to, like to get very practical here for a moment. And I'd like to show you three ways that a strong deacon is a benefit to the church. The, the first way is that he lifts the arms of the shepherds. He lifts the arms of the shepherds. And where do we get that phrase, he lifts the arms? Well, it comes from Exodus 17. You don't have to turn there, but you remember the men who helped Moses? Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him. He fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. Now, let me stop right there for a minute. Many have said, well, it's because he's old and we all chuckle that he's old and he needs help. When Moses died, the testimony about Moses was that he hadn't lost one bit of strength. This wasn't that he was weak and old. It was that he was human and that he, even as a strong shepherd, needed help. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and Put it under him. In other words, they gave him a place to sit and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on either side and the other on the other side. One on one side and the other on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. That's what a deacon does. He lifts up the arms of the shepherds. I've had deacons ask me, what can I do to give you two more hours this week in the word of God? I love that question. We have a really good system going, so usually it's just keep doing what you're doing. There's a second way that a a strong deacon benefits the church. He inspires the church to service. He inspires the church to service. He's talking with his actions. He's not talking with his words so much. He's not saying everybody should serve in the church. He's doing it. He's made the church his life. He's made the church his family's life. He's not gone one out of every 
few Sundays, he's here. He isn't serving because he has a position. He has a position because he's been serving. And this is transformational to the church. Absolutely transformational. This sort of contagious, positive, contagious attitude. In the early mid-20th century in American evangelicalism, there was a tremendous leaning toward what some have called professionalism in the ministry, meaning that the pastors did the work of the ministry and the member's job was to watch, and that it was uh, that sort of uh, kind of spectator mentality. Well, when our beloved John MacArthur came to Grace Community Church in 1969, he simply refused to step into the role of doing everything himself. And he focused almost exclusively on feeding the flock the rich word of God and taking seriously Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of what? Ministry. To equip the saints. Now, in evangelical circles, this was kind of a new trend. Actually, what it was was a return to a biblical model. But in 1972, Moody Monthly Magazine published an article about Grace Community Church called, quote, The Church with 900 Ministers. We would say in Greek, 900 deacons. MacArthur is quoted as saying, quote, The church is nothing but a training place to equip believers to be full-grown saints and to send them out to exercise their spiritual gifts. Just a few years ago, at Grace Community Church, they published an in-house article called Meaningful Membership. And it reminded the church now of many thousands of people of that article of so many years ago, the church with 900 members, and it reminded the church today that the standard is still the same. And to the church today, they said, as a member of Grace Community Church, are you exercising your spiritual gifts in faithful service to others? Are you actively engaged in the work of the ministry Using your gifts to build up the body of Christ is an essential part of what it means to be a church member. And so what a deacon does is he leads the way. He inspires the others. He inspires all of you. A deacon says, look, I've got a 40, 50 hour a week job. I've got a wife. I've got kids. I've got a mortgage. I've got all the same things you do. But I have decided to spend my life for the church. There's a third way deacons benefit the church. He's a living example of Christ's love for the church. He's a living example of Christ's love for the church. The New Testament is sprinkled all over with men and women who serve the church, often nearly completely unnoticed. There are the women who financially supported Jesus and the disciples. The Philippian church single-handedly supporting the Apostle Paul at times. There was Timothy serving Paul for many years. There was John Mark serving both Paul and Peter In fact, writing down Peter's sermons and what we now have as the Gospel of Mark. We have the prayer warriors praying for Peter when he was imprisoned in Acts 12. We have the the saints of Thessalonica spreading the Gospel everywhere. We have the church at Corinth giving a, a large, generous donation to the needy believers of Jerusalem. You see, Jesus Christ did not design His church for one man to carry the burden, to carry the load. He designed the church to be filled with servants to love and to serve one another for a greater cause than themselves. And that is the building of the kingdom of Christ. And a faithful deacon is living proof of Christ's love for his church. That he's given these servants. In fact, Ephesians 4 says that, that after he ascended into heaven, Jesus gave gifts. And these gifts were men. Men in the church. 
The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, valued his deacons. He saw them as a gift from Christ to the church, and he wrote this. He said, whatever there may be here and there of mistake, infirmity, and even wrong, we are assured from wide and close observation that the greater number of our deacons are an honor to our faith. Notice he says the greater number of our deacons. He doesn't say all of them. He's honest. But he says the greater number of our deacons are an honor to our faith and we may style them as the apostle did his brethren, the glory of Christ. Listen to this. Deprive the church of her deacons and she would be bereaved of her most valiant sons. Their loss would be the shaking of the pillars of our spiritual house and would cause a desolation on every side. Thanks be to God, such a calamity is not likely to befall us. For the great head of the church, in mercy to her, will always raise up a succession of faithful men. And then he refers to verse 13 in First Timothy 3, who will use the office well and earn unto themselves a good standing and much boldness in the faith. Now, you might say, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Can I give you four ways that it does? Let me just give you four applications very briefly. First of all, pray for our deacons. Pray for our deacons. If you don't know who they are, they're listed on our website under leadership and staff. They're listed under the part that says deacons. And so pray for them. They're just regular people who are doing the work to lift up the arms of the shepherds. The second way you can have this apply to you is express your thanks and support for them. Uh, right now, you, you're so very gracious. You're, uh, you are celebrating Pastor Appreciation Month, and, and we love that, and, and we celebrate that. But find a deacon and thank them for what they do. Here's a third way you can make this apply to you. Join their teams and be a help to them. You know what happens in almost all of our leadership team meetings about once a month? We say to a certain deacon, you need more people. Go get them. So short circuit that process and go tell some deacons, when you get told you need more people, call me. I'll be that more people for you. And speaking of which, the last application, pray for God's will for you. Pray for God's will for you. If you see a need in the church that may take significant effort and work, If you have a ministry idea that fits Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ, then speak to an elder and and eventually consider deaconship. We have an application process. Now, the beginning of that process might be serve faithfully for three more years and then come talk to us again. Or we might tell you to develop a, a, a particular qualification which we will enumerate next time. But in any case... Pray to be all in for the church. What did Jesus tell his disciples to pray for? Pray for more harvesters. Pray for more workers. The nature of the kingdom is that the last become first, the least become the most, and the lowest become the highest. And the Lord Jesus himself demonstrated this. Jesus said of himself, the very son of God, born as the son of mankind. Here's what he said in Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. 
Take a while, guess what the root word is? Diakonos, the verb form. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I came to be a deacon. I came to serve. Christ's service to his bride is the ultimate service. He gave his life to pay for the sins of all who would believe on him. So can we do any less? So if Christ came to be a deacon, then we are thankful for the servants of our church. If he came to be low, that we might be lifted up, then we can do the same. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this time that we've had. We thank you for the clarity of these six verses, Lord, which give us more information than we, we really uh, can possibly digest in just one hour. And we ask you to help us in the next few messages, Lord, to understand the whole of this text. I do thank you, Lord, for the servants we have in our church now. I thank you for our deacons. I also thank you for our deacons in training. We've kind of dubbed them directors right now. And we thank you, Lord, for the trajectory that they're on. And I thank you for the men and the women in our church that you are and will raise up. You are raising up and will raise up. And we do agree that to a certain degree, every member is a servant at some level and ought to strive for the qualifications here in 1 Timothy 3. But we thank you in particular for those men that you have already raised up. We thank you, Lord, for our women servants in the church as well, which we'll enumerate in in coming weeks. Lord, we ask you to raise up more, not so that we can put pictures on a wall or so we can boast or brag, but so that we could do more of the work of the kingdom. That ultimately, those serving in ways that seem mundane, everything from organizing cleaning to organizing baptism or or things that just seem like they're just mundane tasks are actually all working together in a beautiful synergy in the harmony of seeing souls come to faith in Christ. And may we, by faith, draw that dotted line from simple service all the way to souls now going to heaven. And so we pray, Lord, that the culture of our church would be one that's a church filled with hundreds of ministers, hundreds of deacons, Lord. While, yes, we have the official office, we pray that that's contagious and that all would desire to serve so that the cross of Jesus Christ can be magnified and lifted up and so that our community might be deprived of more and more citizens of Satan and given more and more citizens of God, citizens of heaven. We pray that you would use us, Lord, for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. And it's in his name we pray, amen.